My name is Dr. April Alexander. I'm currently the Metrolina Distinguished Scholar of Health and Policy um, in the Department of Public Health Services in UNC Charlotte. A lot of the youth in the uh, legal system have experienced enormous amounts of trauma. And I always wonder, what if we got them trauma treatment services after their first incident, after their second incident? Could we have prevented them from coming into the system uh, to begin with? And I think that's going to be a compelling conversation for us all to have of how do we heal from all the stressors that we've been through and for some people uh, reaching the level to traumatic experiences. What I'm talking about and a lot of other academics are talking about is how do we actually get our research into the hands of the public? Um, because we're saying, okay, they don't know how to access services. They don't know what treatment models work to um, um, recover or heal from trauma. That's our fault because we haven't showed them our papers. We haven't talked to the public about what works. So that, that advocacy or activism part is going to be necessary in research. What are we going to do to get our research on suicide in adolescents, substance use, um, misuse in um, young people out to the public so that they can consume it and maybe they can make um, health decisions for themselves if uh, they know what works. I have colleagues who have millions of views of their TED Talk. That doesn't get counted like maybe a journal article would. Why? Welcome, April, to the podcast. I've been asking this question of loads of people in recent weeks because I'm running a campaign here in the UK all about mental health research and why it matters. And the question is for you to give us an example of a mental health research paper that's made a real difference to the lives of people living with mental illness. Yeah, a lot of the work I do centers around people's experiences of trauma. Uh, that could be trauma that they've experienced in childhood or uh, incidents of adverse experiences in adulthood. Uh, I think in this present moment in time, especially globally, uh, people are experiencing a lot. Uh, the APA Stress in America survey just came out the other day just discussing um, how individuals are experiencing extreme clinical levels of stress right now, um, uh, whether it's climate change concerns or issues related to our sociopolitical climates or just personal experiences, people are struggling. Um, so then a lot of my research and the research of others on trauma is really trying to understand those experiences, conceptualize it, and then think about how we get people access to treatment. Um, a lot of people don't understand that trauma treatment works, uh, that you can heal and recover from trauma, uh, that you don't have to live with that by yourself um, for the rest of your lives. Um, so a lot of my work really focuses on highlighting those experiences and also thinking about how we can um, eliminate those barriers to care. Uh, some of my work centers around youth in the uh, legal system, that a lot of the youth in the uh, legal system have experienced enormous amounts of trauma. And I always wonder, what if we got them trauma treatment services after their first incident, after their second incident? Could we have prevented them from coming into the system uh, to begin with? And I think that's going to be a compelling conversation for us all to have of how do we heal from all the stressors that we've been through and for some people uh, reaching the level to traumatic experiences. Maybe historically services for people with trauma haven't managed to reach them or those services have been inaccessible 
um, for various reasons around inequality or discrimination. So is there research that's investigating that and thinking about how we, I guess, the cultural dimension of services and how we make sure that we're reaching people as early as possible? Yeah, absolutely. Um, some people are thinking about um, early um early assessment and screening of trauma. So can we get into school systems and see how our youth are doing and have an intervention at the school level? Not all trauma services have to be quote unquote traditional treatment. Uh, so with some communities, uh, maybe they do have cultural mistrust of systems. So that could be medical systems, legal systems, and don't want involvement there. Can we bring therapeutic services to their community that isn't in the form of traditional psychotherapy? Um, so I love seeing all these interventions on let's train barbers or beauticians on how to identify signs of domestic violence and see how they can talk to maybe their clients about trauma. Um, so we, we're seeing a lot of applied research uh, that I always say, I don't want my research to sit on a shelf. I want it to change things, the way in which we provide services, eliminate these barriers, or even change policy. There's a disconnect, isn't there, between um, the research world and the community world. You know, there's yeah. this kind of gown and town sort of <laughs> issue that a lot of academics struggle with. And I suppose I've been working in mental health for about 20 years, and I've seen in that time, particularly in the UK, a real kind of change in, in academia where more people are interested in in becoming activists as well as academics. I think you're a long way ahead in the US in this regard. So we're kind of learning from you about how you're doing this and particularly with partnerships in the community. And, you know, as you say, working where the need is rather than working in our university institutions. Do you think that kind of dual role, the academic and the activist, should be encouraged? And, and do you think also that the system is facilitating it or? preventing it from happening? It's such a great question, and I've been tackling this a lot lately. Let's think about initially how research is funded. It's often funded through government money, so our tax dollars. Um, so we spend um, this money that's coming from the public to conduct research, and then what? We focus on dissemination, and dissemination in academia means in peer-reviewed journal articles. If you were to go and get one of my journal articles on trauma-informed care, you're going to get hit with a paywall. It's going to be $35, $50 just to download my article. That's not making accessible to the public. The public who has invested in my research monetarily, uh, maybe people who've been participants in my research. And so we have that, uh, again, that um, bridge that needs to be met right now. So what I'm talking about and a lot of other academics are talking about is how do we actually get our research into the hands of the public? Uh, because we're saying, okay, they don't know how to access services. They don't know what treatment models work to um, um, recover or heal from trauma. That's our fault because we haven't showed them our papers. We haven't talked to the public about what works. So that, um, that advocacy or activism part is going to be necessary in research. What are we going to do to get our research on suicide in adolescents, substance use, um, misuse in um, young people out to the public so that they can consume it and maybe they can make um, health decisions for themselves if uh, they know what works. Um, so I am encouraging people to take it a step 
further of thinking about how we disseminate research. The second part of your question, are our systems supportive of it? It's still very early to tell. Again, uh, for academics, we get rewarded for these peer-reviewed journal articles, dissemination, citations, everybody in our community who consumes our research. Uh, we talk a lot, and the UK is doing some of this, talking about impact and how we measure impact. So in a lot of the grant mechanisms in the UK, they're now asking, what is going to be the broader impacts of your research? Not just within the academic world, but in the public and global sphere. Um, and so I think we need to think about ways in which we value that impact. I have colleagues who have thousands of viewers on their blogs that doesn't really get counted towards like promotion and tenure. I have colleagues who have millions of views of their TED talk that doesn't get counted like maybe a journal article would. Why? That's reach, that's impact, that's somebody that's getting, um, a, uh, somebody who's able to consume your research in a way that is accessible. Um, so this model of thinking about scholar advocate or scholar activists is going to be necessary. Because if people are investing in our research, we want to make sure we're giving it back to them. Who's responsible for that dissemination? Putting it on the researcher feels wrong to me, because by the time you get to that point in your project, I mean, putting it 100% on the researcher, I think there's a lot we can do to encourage researchers to be better at public engagement and communication of science and all those things. But it feels like when you get to that point in your project where we need to get it out there and disseminate it. It's You're on to the next thing, aren't you? You're on to your next grant proposal and you're desperately trying to make sure that everybody in your team stays in your team and doesn't go off and work somewhere else. And it feels like the whole infrastructure and the way that your impact is measured by your funder and by your university is designed to prevent dissemination from happening. Mm -hmm. um, who do you think within the system, funders, the employers, the researchers, or is there a new role that we need to bring in to actually make sure that dissemination and implementation happens? And that's such a challenge. I think everybody has to be invested in it. The researcher needs to think, uh, the researcher or research team, they need to think about it from the beginning. Uh, what do we want to see in the outcomes of our research? Uh, it's not just the peer-reviewed journal article, but can we develop infographics about the results of our study and post it on social media? Uh, can we get a blog post out of this? Is this something that can be flipped into an op-ed in a local or national newspaper? Um, so already the research team thinking about that. And then everybody else along the way, I, I wonder if grantors are also doing the same thing uh, for all the grants that they've funded. How are they um, publicizing the results on their own websites and disseminating it out to others? Who's responsible for getting it into the hands of policymakers? So we need to figure out if that's the researcher, the funder, or even the institution in which um, is uh, responsible for the research and their research team. So I think there's various mechanisms that everybody needs to kind of circle around in order to figure out what's the best course. Um, I just started at UNC Charlotte, but prior to here, I was at the University of Denver, and what they had started was a public impact um, scholarship fellowship program. So let's teach uh, faculty from across the institution how to get their research or their work products out to the public sphere. Um, and so that was like a great training program that the university was invested in on how do we get our um, faculty out in front of media? How do we get our faculty's research to policymakers? Um, how do we teach our um, uh, faculty how to write op-eds? 
so the university placed that investment in teaching and training and assisting you to get your um, scholarship out there. And I really valued that program and the benefits I gained from it. And uh, again, the public at large and us being able to get our research out. You spoke earlier on about community partnership, and it strikes me that part of the solution to this work is to make sure that you have really good, strong community links and you're working with grassroots organisations, not just on projects, but just as a baseline generally. So you're not starting a project and then thinking, right, how do we do this in the community? You've already got those relationships, but also co-producing the research with, you know, for, in your example, young people with experience of trauma, so that when you're doing it, you're thinking all the time about how it's relevant to their lives. And that's kind of doing the dissemination before you're even ready, in a sense. Right. So can you give us an example of that sort of community engagement and co-production that makes that whole process just a lot more streamlined? I know a lot of people are engaging in community-engaged um, scholarship where you're naturally building those relationships with community over time. We've Researchers get this bad rap of we do research on community and then leave, leave them. They don't get the results of the research. Uh, they feel used and manipulated. Um, and that causes some disparities in our system and why people don't want to engage in research. How can we kind of naturally get to know our communities? Uh, so embedding ourselves in there, building those relationships. This is where the challenge is, is sometimes that takes time a lot of time, maybe even years to do. And so for some researchers, they feel that pressure of, oh, I have to produce, but I can't do this community-engaged research well because it takes time. And so thinking about models that would work and how do we work with community with our research. I've seen some great examples of uh, scholars who even work with the community partners on the manuscript. Uh, so you have youth who are co-authors on the manuscript, uh, youth who have a voice and say in um, the design of the research and the questions to ask. Um, so thinking about how we are community engaged throughout the entire process in a way that's authentic, meaningful, and also increases the external validity of our product. It's about trust, isn't it? It's about the community trusting you and your world of science. And it may be that historically, research has been done on them rather than with them. But actually, it's been racist and deeply stigmatizing. And so how do we build that trust in research and science as a thing within communities? I think there's going to be some personal characteristics that researchers need to think about, too. Um, what kind of learning are you doing uh, about your community? Uh, so do you know the history of your community? Uh, so anytime when I move to a new place, I've moved around a lot. My parents were in the military. Uh, I've kind of learned that I need to sit down and sit back and watch for a while. I need to know the history of gentrification and redlining in the communities that I work in, uh, how structures were um, uh, created um, in my community before I can even think of what research looks like. Um, I need to think about the history of racism, oppression, and other forms of marginalization within the community that I'm working with. Um, so I think not, uh, not a lot we think of those kind of personal or interpersonal characteristics of what makes a researcher, uh, that there's a lot of work both 
unlearning and relearning that researchers have to do in order to truly understand that the, the work that they're doing before they engage in scholarship uh, so that we can eliminate some of these um, the area of historical mistrust that is very valid given uh, the damage that researchers have done on populations over time. It strikes me that researchers have got lots of, you know, skills and experience that is quite unique in that kind of community setting, things that you can bring to the community as part of, I don't know, you know, grant applications or whatever it might be that you need to do this kind of community activism. I'm interested in using this to show it to other researchers who are thinking, oh, could I become an activist? What sort of tips do you think you would give to researchers who are thinking about that? Yeah, I think about how we can, again, work with community and give our knowledge and expertise away. So I have been on boards of nonprofits and nonprofits that um, don't necessarily center around psychology, but can um, use our help and support um, to get grants, to change policy. Uh, so one of those was the Colorado Juvenile Defender Center, providing pro bono uh, attorneys to youth in systems who are being treated unfairly, and us having conversations about the research on the school-to-prison pipeline um, and how unfair discriminatory uh, school practices are ousting these children. So not everybody, again, has access to that research, so I'm the one who's able to contribute that to this team of a variety of different experts at the table, uh, that we then have the lawyers, we have the educators, we even have formerly incarcerated youth who are involved, and we each are adding to the conversation about how we all can uh, solve a problem. So I think interdisciplinary work is really important to the space. Uh, people with lived experience being involved is important to the space um, because we're all invested in community change and activism. Um, so I think when we're talking about advocacy or activism, just making sure that we have those diverse uh, voices at the table um, who offer different areas of expertise and experience. Um, so we're just one piece of the puzzle. Um, the science, the social science, the psychology is just one piece of the puzzle to thinking about all the things that are needed to facilitate social change. I work quite a lot with researchers here in the UK who do a lot of this dual role, the academic and activist. And one of the frequent bits of feedback I get from them is this feeling of shame and guilt that they're not doing enough of the activism. Mm. And so I just wonder what you think about the balance between those and, and how you kind of go along that path to make sure that you are surviving and keeping yourself well um, mm. and doing the researcher role well enough, because these are both more than full time roles, aren't they? Yeah, uh, this is always a challenging question. And how integrated are those roles, too? Um, because in some ways, I don't want them to be seen as separate identities. I want them to be blended and natural in the work that we do. And I think a part of it is for researchers who do adopt this advocate activist role is also protecting yourself and engaging in self-care. Um, so when I'm engaging in policy work, everybody says or asks me, they say, what happens if that bill doesn't get passed? Like, what does that do to you? And I'm like, yeah, it hurts. And then it also we have to keep fighting like this is why we're here. And part of that is also an element of self-care. Um, how do we protect ourselves in these spaces? And again, that all goes back to community. Uh, how do we have community investment in having mutual aid, mutual care for one another, 
Um, so again, those personal interpersonal skills become so important in this work to keep us going and keep ourselves protected. Um, researchers are doing so much important work right now, uh, whether it is on discrimination and hate, suicide, climate change, we are bogged down, we are tired. Um, so making sure you're taking the space to also take care of yourself is going to be so important in this movement work. Mm -hmm.